Part Four of A Matter of Importance by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Four. The skipper waited. Opening communication with someone who shoots on detector contact may be difficult. I figure, rumbled the sergeant, they're a lot like D-Links. A cop can figure how they think, but they can't figure how a cop thinks. Such as? asked the skipper. They can't understand anybody not trying to be important, said Sergeant Madden. It baffles them. What's that got to do with the people on the Cerberus? demanded the skipper. It's our job to get them and the Cerberus back on the way to port. I know, conceded Sergeant Madden. And the girl my son Timmy's going to marry is one of them, but I don't think we'll have much trouble. Have you got any multi-polyplastic on the Aldeb? The skipper nodded blankly. Multi-polyplastic is a substance as anomalous as its name. It is a multiple polymer of something or other, which stretches very accommodatingly to a surprising expanse, and then suddenly stops stretching. When it stops, it has a high and obstinate tensile strength. All ships carry it for temporary repairs, because it will seal off anything. A one mil thickness will hold fifteen pounds pressure. Ships have been known to come down for landing with bubbles of multipoly glistening out of holes in their hulls. A salvage ship, especially, would carry an ample supply. A minor convenience in its use is the fact that a detonator cap set off at any part of it starts a wave of disintegration which is too slow to be an explosion and cleans up the mess made in its application. Naturally, I've got it, said the skipper. What do you want with it? Sergeant Madden told him. Painfully, painstakingly. The tough part, said the skipper, is making them go out an ejector tube. But I've got fourteen good men. Give me two hours for the first batch. We'll make up the second while you're placing them. Sergeant Madden nodded. The skipper went into the lock and closed the door behind him. After a moment, Patrolman Willis saw him wading through the incredibly delicate and fragile gas ice crystals. Then the Aldeb's lock swallowed him. The odd thing about the Huck business was the minute scale of the things that happened compared to the background in which they took place. The squad ship, for example, lifted off Cyrene 8 for the second time. She'd been out once and come back for the second batch of multi-poly objects. Cyrene 8 was not a giant planet by any means, but it was a respectable 6,000 miles in diameter. The squad ship's sixty feet of length was a moat so minute by comparison that no comparison was possible. She headed in toward the sun. She winked out of existence into overdrive. She headed toward Cyrene Four in Quadrator, where missile rockets floated in orbit awaiting the coming of any enemy. The distance to be traveled was roughly one and a half light-hours, some twelve astronomical units of ninety-three million miles each. The squad ship covered that distance in a negligible length of time. It popped into normality about two hundred thousand miles out from the Huck homeworld. It seemed insolently to remain there. In a matter of seconds it appeared at another place, 
a hundred fifty thousand miles out, but off to one side. It seemed arrogantly to remain there, too, in a second place at the same time. Then it appeared, with the arbitrary effect a ship does give when coming out of overdrive, at a third place a hundred seventy-five thousand miles from the planet. At a fourth place barely eighty thousand miles short of collision with the Huck world. At a fifth place, a sixth. Each time it appeared it seemed to remain in plain, challenging, insolent view, without ceasing to exist at the spots where it had appeared previously. In much less than a minute the seeming of a sizable squadron of small human ships had popped out of emptiness and lay off the Huck home world at distances ranging from eighty thousand miles to three times as much. Suddenly light flashed intolerably in emptiness. It was in contact with one of the seeming squad ships, which ceased to be. But immediately two more ships appeared at widely different spots. A second flash, giant and terrible nearby, a pinpoint of light among the stars. Another ostensible human ship vanished in atomic flame, but still another appeared magically from nowhere. A third, and then a fourth flash, three more within successive seconds. Squad ships continued to appear as if by necromancy, and space near the planet was streaked by flarings of white vapor as eighty G rockets hurled themselves to destruction against the invading objects. As each bomb went off its light was brighter than the sun, but each was a mere flicker in enormousness. They flashed and flashed. Each was a bomb turning forty kilograms of matter into pure raw raging destruction. Each was devastation, sufficient to destroy the greatest city the galaxy ever knew. But in all that appalling emptiness they were mere scintillations. In the background of a solar system's vastness they made all the doings of men and hucks alike seem ludicrous. For a long time, perhaps five minutes, perhaps ten, the flashings which were the most terrible of all weapons continued. Each flash destroyed something which, in scale, was less than a dust mote. But more motes appeared, and more, and more, and more. And presently the flashes grew infrequent. The threads of vapor which led to each grew longer. In a little while they came from halfway around the planet. Then squad ships appeared even there, and immediately pinpoints of intolerable brilliance destroyed them, yet never as fast as they appeared. Finally there came ten seconds in which no atomic flame ravened in emptiness. One more glitter, fifteen seconds, twenty, thirty seconds without a flashing of atomic explosive. The surviving objects which appeared to be squad ships hung in space. They moved without plan. They swam through space without destination. Presently the most unobservant of watches must have perceived that their movement was random, that they were not driven, that they had no purpose that they were not squad ships but targets, and not even robot targets, set out for the missile rockets of the Huck planet to expend themselves on. 
the missile rockets had expended themselves. So Sergeant Madden opened communication with the Hucks. These Hucks, observed Sergeant Madden as the squad ship descended to the Huck planet's surface, they must have had a share in the scrapping eighty years ago. They've got everything the old-time Hucks had. They've even got recordings of human talk from civilian human prisoners of years gone by. And they kept somebody able to talk it, for when they fought with us. Patrolman Willis did not answer. He had a strange expression on his face. At the moment they were already within the Huck home planet's atmosphere. From time to time a heavily accented voice gave curt instructions. It was a Huck voice, telling Patrolman Willis how to guide the squad ship to ground where, under truce, Sergeant Madden might hold conference with Huck authorities. "'Hold the course,' said the voice. "'That is right. Do as you are.' The horizon had ceased to be curved minutes ago. Now the ground rose gradually. The ground was green. Large green growths clustered off to one side of the flat area where the ship was to alight. They were the equivalent of trees on this planet. Undoubtedly there were equivalents of grass and shrubs and seed-bearing and root-propagating vegetation. And Hucks would make use of some seeds and roots for food. Because in order to have a civilization one has to have a larger food supply than can be provided by even the thriftiest of grazing animals. But the Hucks, or their ancestors, would need to have been flesh-eaters also, for brains to be useful in hunting, and therefore for mental activity to be recognized as useful. A vegetarian community can maintain a civilization, but it has to start off on meat. A clump of ground cars waited for the squad ship's landing. The ship touched, delicately. Sergeant Madden rumbled and got out of his chair. Patrolman Willis looked at him uneasily. "'Huh,' said Sergeant Madden. "'Of course you can come. You want them to think we're bluffing? No, nothing to fight with. The Hawks think our fleet's set to do the fighting.' He undogged the exit door and went through the small vestibule, which was also the ship's airlock. Patrolman Willis joined him out of doors. The air was fresh, the sky was blue. Clouds floated in the sky, and growing things gave off a not unpleasant odor, and the breeze blew uncertainly. But such things happen on appropriate planets in most Sol-type solar systems. Hawks came toward them, stiffly, defiantly. The most conspicuous difference between Hucks and humans was of degree. Hucks grew hair all over their heads instead of only parts of it. But they wore garments, and some of the garments were identical and impressive, so they could be guessed to be uniforms. "'How do?' said the voice that had guided the ship down. "'We are ready to listen to your message.' Sergeant Madden said heavily, we humans believe you Hawks have got a good fleet. We believe you've got a good army. We know you've got good rockets and a fighting force that's worth a lot to us. We want to make a treaty for you to take over and defend as much territory as you're able to against some characters heading this way from the Colsack region. Silence. The interpreter translated, and the Hawks muttered astonishedly among themselves. 
The interpreter received instructions. "'Do you mean others of our race?' he demanded haughtily. "'Members of our own race who return to recover their home worlds from humans?' "'Hell no,' said Sergeant Madden dourly. "'If you can get in contact with them and bring them back, they can have their former planets back and more besides, if they'll defend them. We're stretched thin. We didn't come here to fight your fleet. We came to ask it to join us.' More mutterings. The interpreter faced about. "'This, sir, prizes us.' he said darkly. We know of no danger in the direction you speak of. Perhaps we would wish to make friends with that danger instead of you." Sergeant Madden snorted. <laughs> "'You're welcome,' then he said sardonically. "'If you're able to reach us after you try, the offer stands. Join us, and you'll give your own commands and make your own decisions. We'll cooperate with you. <laughs> but you won't make friends with the characters I'm talking about, <laughs> not hardly." More hurried discussions still. The interpreter defiantly. "'And if we r refuse to join you?' Sergeant Madden shrugged. "'Nothing. You'll fight on your own, anyhow. So will we. If we joined up we could both fight better. I came to try to arrange so we'd both be stronger.' We need you, you need us." There was a pause. Patrolman Willis swallowed. At five-million-mile intervals, in a circle fifty-million miles across, with the Huck world as its center, objects floated in space. Patrolman Willis knew about them because he and Sergeant Madden had put them there immediately after the missile rockets ceased to explode. He knew what they were and his spine crawled at the thought of what would happen if the Hucks found out. But the distant objects were at the limit of certain range for detection devices. The planet's instruments could just barely pick them up. They subtended so small a fraction of a thousandth of a second of arc that no information could be had about them. But they acted like a monstrous space fleet ready to pour down war-headed missiles in such numbers as to smother the planet in atomic flame. Patrolman Willis could not imagine admitting that such a supposed fleet needed another fleet to help it. A military man, bluffing as Sergeant Madden bluffed, would not have dared offer any terms less onerous than abject surrender. But Sergeant Madden was a cop. It was not his purpose to make anybody surrender. His job was ultimately to make them behave. The Hucks conferred. The conference was lengthy. The interpreter turned to Sergeant Madden and spoke with vast dignity and caginess. When do you require an answer? We don't, grunted Sergeant Madden. When you make up your minds, send a ship to Varenga Three. We'll give you the information we've got. Now that's whether you fight with us or independent. You'll fight once you meet these characters. We don't worry about that. Just we can do better together." Then he said, "'Have you got the coordinates for Varinga? I don't know what you call it in your language.' "'We have them,' said the interpreter, still suspiciously. "'Right,' said Sergeant Madden. "'That's all. 
We came here to tell you this. Let us know when you make up your minds. Now we'll go back. He turned as if to trudge back to the squad ship. And this, of course, was the moment when the difference between a military and a cop mind was greatest. A military man, with the defenses of the planet smashed or exhausted, and an apparent overwhelming force behind him, would have tried to get the Cerberus and its company turned over to him, either by implied or explicit threats. Sergeant Madden did not mention them, but he had made it necessary for the Hucks to do something. They'd been shocked to numbness by the discovery that humans knew of their presence on Cyrene Four. They'd been made aghast by the brisk and competent nullification of their ADG rocket defenses. They'd been appalled by the appearance of a space fleet which, if it had been a space fleet, could have blasted the planet to a cinder. And then they were bewildered that the humans asked no submission, not even promises from them. There was only one conclusion to be drawn. It was that if the humans were willing to be friendly, it would be a good idea to agree. Another idea followed. A grand gesture by Hucks would be an even better idea. Wait, said the interpreter. He turned. A momentary further discussion among the Hucks. The interpreter turned back. There is a ship here, he said uneasily. It is a human ship. There are humans in it. The ship is disabled. Sergeant Madden affected surprise. Yeah? How come? It arrived two days ago, said the interpreter. Then he plunged. We brought it. We have a mine on what you call Pro-Cyron Three. The human ship landed because it was disabled. It discovered our ship and our mine there. We wish to keep the mine secret. Because the humans had found out our secret, we brought them here. And the ship. It is disabled. Hmm, says Sergeant Madden. I'll send a repair boat down to fix whatever's the matter with it. Of course you won't mind. He turned away and turned back. One of the solar systems we'd like you to take over and defend, he observed, is Procyron. I haven't a list of the others, but when your ship comes over to Varenga it'll be ready. Talk our repair boat down, will you? We'll appreciate anything you can do to help the ship get back out in space with its passengers, but our repair boat can manage. He waved his hand negligently and went back to the squad ship. He got in. Patrolman Willis followed him. "'Take her up,' said Sergeant Madden. The squad ship fell toward the sky. Sergeant Madden said satisfiedly, "'That went off pretty good. From now on it's just routine.' There was a bubble in emptiness. It was a large bubble, as th such things go. It was nearly a thousand feet in diameter, and it was made of multi-polyplastic, which is nearly as anomalous as its name. The bubble contained almost an ounce of helium. It had a three-inch small box at one point on its surface. It floated some twenty-five million miles from the Huck planet, and five million miles from another bubble which was its identical twin. It could reflect detector pulses. In so doing, it impersonated a giant fighting ship. Something like an hour after the squad ship rose from Cyrene Four, 
A detonator cap exploded in the three-inch box. It tore the box to atoms and initiated a wave of disintegration in the plastic of the bubble. The helium bubble content escaped and was lost. The plastic itself turned to gas and disappeared. The bubble had been capable of exactly two actions. It could reflect detector pulses. In doing so, it had impersonated a giant fighting ship, member of an irresistible fleet. It could also destroy itself. In so doing, it impersonated a giant fighting ship, one of a fleet, going into overdrive. In rapid succession, all the bubbles which were members of a non-existent fighting fleet winked out of existence about Cyrene Four. There were a great many of them, and no trace of any remained. The last was long gone when a small salvage ship descended to the Huck home planet. A heavily accented voice talked it down. The salvage ship landed amid evidences of cordiality. The Hucks were extremely cooperative. They even supplied materials for the repair job on the Cerberus, including landing rockets to be used in case of need. But they weren't needed for takeoff. The Cerberus had been landed at a Huck spaceport, which obligingly lifted it out to space again when its drive had been replaced. And the squad ship sped through emptiness at a not easily believable multiple of the speeds of light. Sergeant Madden dozed, while Patrolman Willis performed such actions as were necessary for the progress of the ship. They were very few, but Patrolman Willis thought feverishly. After a long time Sergeant Madden waked and blinked and looked benignly at Patrolman Willis. "'You'll be back with your wife soon, Willis,' he said encouragingly. "'Yes, sir.' Then the Patrolman said explosively, "'Sergeant, there's nothing coming from the Colsack Way. There's nothing for the Hucks to fight.' "'True, at the moment,' admitted Sergeant Madden. "'But something could come. Not likely, but—you see, Willis, the Hucks have had armed forces for a long time. They've glamour. They're not ready to cut down and have only cops like us humans. It wouldn't be reasonable to tell them the truth, that there's no need for their fighting men. They'd make a need. So they'll stand guard happily against some kind of monstrosities we'll have special cases invent for them. They'll stand guard zestfully for years and years. Didn't they do the same against us? But now they're proud that even we humans, that they were scared of, ask them for help. So presently they'll send some hucks over to go through the police academy, and then presently there'll be a sub-precinct station over there with hucks in charge, and—why, uh, that'll be that. But they want planets. Sergeant Madden shrugged. <laughs> There's plenty, Willis. The guess is six thousand million planets fit for humans in the galaxy. And by the time we've used them up, somebody'll have worked out a drive that'll take us to the next galaxy to start over. There's no need to worry about that. And for immediate, does it occur to you how many men are going to start getting rich because there's a brand new planet that's got a lot of things we human would like to have and wants to buy a lot of things the Hucks haven't got? Patrolman Willis subsided, but presently he said, Sergeant? What'd you have done if they hadn't told you about their Cerberus?" Sergeant Madden snorted. Huh, it's unthinkable. 
We waltzed in there and told them a tale, and showed every sign of walking right out again without asking them a thing. They couldn't tell us to go to hell, because it looked like we didn't care what they said. It was insupportable, Willis. Characters that make trouble, Willis, do it to feel important. And we left them without a thing to tell us that was important enough to mention, unless they told us about the Cerberus. We had them baffled. They needed to say something, and that was the only thing they could say. He yawned. The Aldeb reports everybody on the Cerberus safe and sound, only frightened, and the skipper said Timmy's girl was less scared than most. I'm pleased. Timmy's getting married, and I wouldn't want my grandchildren to have a scary mother. He looked at the squad ship's instruments. There was a long way yet to travel. Ah, it's a dull business, this overdrive, he said somulently. And it's amazing how much a man can sleep when everything's in hand, and there's nothing ahead but a wedding and a few things like that. Just routine, Willis, just routine. He settled himself more comfortably as the squad ship went on home. The End End of Part 4 End of A Matter of Importance by Murray Leinster